Welcome to tape number four of The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, as read by Michael Wyatt. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 47110-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with the last portion of uh, the faithfulness of God, the apprehension of this blessed truth will preserve us from worry. To be full of care, to view our situation with dark forebodings, to anticipate the morrow with sad anxiety, is to reflect poorly upon the faithfulness of God. He who has cared for his child through all the years will not forsake him in old age. He who heard your prayers in the past will not refuse to supply your need in the present emergency. Rest on Job 5.19. He shall deliver thee in six troubles. Yea, in seven there shall no evil touch thee. The apprehension of this blessed truth will check our murmurings. The Lord knows what is best for each one of us, and each one effect of resting on this truth will be the silencing of our petulant complainings. God is greatly honored when, under trial and chastening, we have good thoughts of Him, vindicate His wisdom and justice, and recognize His love in, the, in His very rebukes. The apprehension of this blessed truth will beget increasing confidence in God. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing, as unto a faithful Creator. 1 Peter 4.19 when we trustfully resign ourselves and all our affairs into God's hands, fully persuaded of His love and faithfulness, the sooner shall we be satisfied with His providences and realize that He doeth all things well. Chapter 11 The Goodness of God The goodness of God endureth continually. Psalm 52, 1 the goodness of God refers to the perfection of His nature. God is light, and in Him no darkness, and in Him is no darkness at all. First John 1:5. There is such and wanting to it, or defective in it, and nothing can be added to it to make it better. Quote from Thomas Manton. He is originally good, good of himself, which nothing else is, for all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He is essentially good, not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a superadded quality. 
In God it is his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop. But in God there is an infinite ocean of gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less good than he is, as there can be no addition made to him, so no, so no subtraction from him. End quote. God is summum bonum, the highest good. God is not only the greatest of all beings, but the best. All the goodness there is in any creature has been imparted from the Creator, but God's goodness is underived, for it is the essence of His eternal nature. As God is infinite in power from all eternity, before there was any display thereof or any act of omnipotence He put forth, so He was eternally good before there was any communication of His bounty or any creature to whom it might be imparted. Thus, the first manifestation of this divine perfection was in giving being to all things. Thou art good, and doest good. Psalm 119, verse 68. God has in himself an infinite and inexhaustible treasure of all blessedness, enough to fill all things. All that emanates from God, his decrees, his creation, his laws, his providences, cannot be otherwise than good, as it is written, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 1.31 Thus the goodness of God is seen first in creation. The more closely the creature is studied, the more the beneficence of its creator becomes apparent. Take the highest of God's earthly creatures, man. Abundant reason he has to say with the psalmist, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Psalm 139, verse 14. Everything about the structure of our bodies attests the goodness of their maker. How suited the hands to perform their allotted work. How good of the Lord to appoint sleep to refresh the wearied body. How benevolent his provision to give to the eyes, lids, and brows for their protection. And so we might continue indefinitely. Nor is the goodness of the Creator confined to man. It is exercised towards all his creatures. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16. Whole volumes might be written, yea, have been, to amplify this fact. Whether it be the birds of the air, the beasts of the forest, or the fish of the sea, abundant provision has been made to supply their every need. God giveth food to all flesh, for his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136:25. Truly, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 33, verse 5. The goodness of God is seen in the variety of natural pleasures which he has provided for his creatures. God might have been pleased to satisfy our hunger without the food being pleasing to our palates. How his benevolence appears in the varied flavors which he has given to meats, vegetables, and fruits. God has not only given us senses, but also that which gratifies them, and this too reveals his goodness. The earth might have been as fertile as it is without its surface being so delightfully variegated. Our physical lives could have been sustained without beautiful flowers to regale our eyes with their colors, 
and our nostrils with their sweet perfumes. We might have walked the fields without our ears being saluted by the music of the birds. Whence then this loveliness, this charm so freely diffused over the face of nature? Verily, the tender mercies of the Lord are all over all his works. Psalm 145, verse 9. The goodness of God is seen in that when man transgressed the law of his creator, a dispensation of unmixed wrath did not at once commence. Well might God have deprived his fallen creatures of every blessing, every comfort, every pleasure. Instead, he ushered in a regime of a mixed nature of mercy and judgment. This is very wonderful if it be duly considered and the more thoroughly that regimen, excuse me, that regime be examined, the more will it appear that mercy rejoiceth against judgment, James 2.13. Notwithstanding all the evils which attend our fallen state, the balance of good greatly preponderates. With comparatively rare exceptions, men and women experience a far greater number of days of health than they do of sickness and pain. There is much more creature happiness than creature misery in the world. Even our sorrows admit of considerable alleviation, and God has given to the human mind a pliability which adapts itself to circumstances and makes the most of them. Nor can the benevolence of God be justly called into question because there is suffering and sorrow in the world. If man sins against the goodness of God, if he despises the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, and after the hardness and impenitency of his heart treasureth up unto himself wrath against the day of wrath, Romans 2, 4 and 5, who is to blame but himself? Would God be good if he punished not those who ill-use his blessings, abuse his benevolence, and trample his mercies beneath their feet? It will be no reflection upon God's goodness, but rather the brightest exemplification of it when he shall rid the earth of those who have broken his laws, defied his authority, mocked his messengers, scorned his son, and persecuted those for whom he died. The goodness of God appeared most illustriously when he sent forth his son, made of woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons Galatians 4, 4 and 5 then it was that a multitude of the heavenly host praised their maker and said glory to God in the highest and on earth peace good will towards men Luke two fourteen. yes in the gospel the grace which word in Greek conveys the idea of benevolence or goodness of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, Titus 2.11. Nor can God's benignity be called into question because he has not made every sinful creature to be, subject, to be a subject of his redemptive grace. He did not bestow it upon the fallen angels. Had God left all to perish, it would have been no reflection on his goodness. To any who would challenge this statement, we will remind him of our Lord's sovereign prerogative, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine I evil because I am good? Matthew 20, verse 15. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Psalm 107, verse 8. Gratitude is the return justly required from the objects of his beneficence. 
Yet it is often withheld from our great benefactor simply because his goodness is so constant and so abundant. It is lightly esteemed because it is exercised towards us in the common course of events. It is not felt because we daily experience it. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness? Romans 2.4 His goodness is despised when it is not improved as a means to lead men to repentance, but, on the contrary, serves to harden them from the supposition that God entirely overlooks their sin. The goodness of God is the life of the believer's trust. It is this excellency in God which most appeals to our hearts. Because his goodness endureth forever, we ought never to be discouraged. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Nahum 1.7 Quoting C.H. Spurgeon, quote, When others behave badly to us, it should only stir us up the more heartily to give thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, and when we ourselves are conscious that we are far from being good, we should only the more reverently bless him that he is good. We must never tolerate an instance of unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain, that Jehovah is good. His dispensations may vary, but his nature is always the same. End quote. Chapter 12. The Patience of God Far less has been written upon this than any other excellencies of the divine character. Not a few of those who have expatiated at length upon the divine attributes have passed over the patience of God without any comment. It is not easy to suggest a reason for this, for surely the long-suffering of God is as much one of the divine perfections as is his wisdom, power, or holiness, and as much to be admired and revered by us. True, the actual term will not be found in a concordance as frequently as the others, but the glory of this grace itself shines forth on almost every page of Scripture. Certain it is that when we lose much, if, that we lose much if we do not frequently meditate upon the patience of God and earnestly pray that our hearts and ways be more completely conformed thereto. Most probably the principal reason why so many writers have failed to give us anything separately upon the patience of God was because of the difficulty in dis of distinguishing this attribute from the divine goodness and mercy. Particularly the latter, God's long-suffering is mentioned in conjunction with his grace and mercy again and, and again, as may be seen by consulting Exodus 34.6, Numbers 14.18, Psalm 86.15, etc., that the patience of God is really a display of his mercy, that it is indeed one way in which it is frequently manifested, cannot be denied. But that patience and mercy are one and the same excellency and are not to be separ separated, we cannot concede. It may not be easy to discriminate between them. Nevertheless, Scripture fully warrants us in affirming some things about the one which we cannot about the other. Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, defines God's patience in part thus, quote, It is part of the divine goodness and mercy, yet differs from both. God being the greatest goodness hath the greatest mildness. Mildness is always the companion of true goodness, and the greater the goodness, the greater the mildness. Who so holy as Christ, and who so meek? 
God's slowness to anger is a branch from his mercy. The Lord is full of compassion, slow to anger. Psalm 145, verse 8. It differs from mercy in the formal consideration of the object. Mercy respects the creature as miserable. Patience respects the creature as criminal. Mercy pities him in his misery, and patience bears with the sin which engendered the misery and which is giving birth to more. Personally, we would define the divine patience as that power of control which God exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and forbear so long in punishing them. In Nahum 1, verse 3, we read, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, upon which Mr. Charnock said, quote, Men that are great in the world are quick in passion and are not so ready to forgive an injury or bear with an offender as one of the meaner rank. It is a want of power over that man's self that makes him do unbecoming things upon a provocation. A prince that can bridle his passions is a king over himself as well as over his subjects. God is slow to anger because great in power. He has no less power over himself than over his creatures. End quote. It is at the above point we think that God's patience is most clearly distinguished from his mercy. Though the creature is benefited thereby, the patience of God God chiefly respects himself, a restraint placed upon his acts by his will, whereas his mercy terminates wholly upon the creature. The patience of God is that excellency which causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. He has a power of patience as well as a power of justice. Thus the Hebrew word for the divine long-suffering is rendered slow to anger. In Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 103, verse 8, etc. Not that there are any passions in the divine nature, but that God's wisdom and will is pleased to act with that stateliness and sobriety which is becoming to his exalted majesty. In support of our definition above, let us point out that it was to this excellency in the divine character that Moses appealed when Israel sinned so grievously at Kadesh Barnea and there provoked Jehovah so sorely. Unto his servant the Lord said, I will smite them with the pestilence and disherit them. Then it was that the mediator Moses, as a type of the Christ to come, pleaded, I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering, etc. Numbers 14.17 Thus his long-suffering is his power of self-restraint. Again, in Romans 9.22, we read, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Were God to immediately break these reprobate vessels into pieces, his power of self-control would not so eminently appear by bearing with their wickedness and forbearing punishment so long. The power of his patience is gloriously demonstrated. True, the wicked interpret his long-suffering quite differently. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11 But the anointed eye adores what they abuse. 
The God of Patience, Romans 15.5, is one of the divine titles. Deity is thus denominated first because God is both the author and object of the grace of patience in the saints. Secondly, because this is what he is in himself. Patience is one of his perfections. Thirdly, as a pattern for us, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, Colossians 3.12. And again, be therefore followers or emulators of God as dear children, Ephesians 5.2. When tempted to be disgusted at the dullness of another or to be revenged on one who has wronged you, call to remembrance God's infinite patience and long-suffering with yourself. The patience of God is manifested in his dealings with sinners, how strikingly it was displayed towards the antediluvians. When mankind was universally degenerate and all flesh had corrupted its way, God did not destroy them till he had forewarned them. He waited, 1 Peter 3.20, probably no less than 120 years, Genesis 6.3, during which time Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5. So, later, when the Gentiles not only worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, but also committed the vilest abominations contrary even to the dictates of nature, Romans 1, 19-26, and thereby filled up the measure of their iniquity, yet, instead of drawing his sword for extermination of such rebels, God suffered all nations to walk in their own ways and gave them rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, Acts 14, 16, and 17. Marvelously was God's patience exercised and manifested towards Israel. First, he suffered their manners for 40 years in the wilderness, Acts 13, 18. Later, when they had entered Canaan, but followed the evil customs of the nations around them and turned to idolatry, Though God chastened them sorely, he did not utterly destroy them, but in their distress raised up deliverers for them. When their iniquity was raised to such a height that none but a God of infinite patience could have borne them, he spared them many years before he allowed them to be carried down into Babylon. Finally, when their rebellion against him reached its climax by crucifying his son, he waited 40 years ere he sent the Romans against them, and that only after they had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, Acts 13.46. How wondrous is God's patience with the world today. On every side people are sinning with a high hand. The divine law is trampled underfoot, and God himself openly despised it is truly amazing that he does not instantly strike dead those who so brazenly defy him. Why does he not suddenly cut off the haughty infidel and blatant blasphemer as he did Ananias and Sapphira? Why does he not cause the earth to open its mouth and devour the persecutors of his people so that, like Dathan and Abiram, they shall go down alive into the pit? And what of apostate Christendom? where every possible form of sin is now tolerated and practiced under cover of the holy name of Christ, why does not the righteous wrath of heaven make an end of such abominations? Only one answer is possible, because God bears with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. And what of the writer and the reader? Let us review our own lives. 
Is it not long since we followed a multitude to do evil, had no concern for God's glory, and lived only to gratify self? How patiently he bore with our vile conduct, and now that grace has snatched us as brands from the burning, giving us a place in God's family, and has begotten us unto an eternal inheritance in glory, how miserably we requite him, how shallow our gratitude, how tardy our obedience, how frequent our backslidings. One reason why God suffers the flesh to remain in the believer is that he may exhibit his long-suffering to usward, 2 Peter 3, 9. Since this divine attribute is manifested only in this world, God takes advantage to display it towards his own. May our meditation upon this divine excellency soften our hearts, make our consciences tender, and may we learn in the school of holy experience the patience of saints, namely, submission to the divine will and continuance in doing well. Let us earnestly seek grace to emulate this divine excellency. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Matthew 5.48 In the immediate context of this verse, Christ exhorts us to love our enemies, bless them that curse us, do good to them that hate us. God bears long with the wicked, notwithstanding the multitude of their sins, and shall we desire to be revenged because of a single in injury? Chapter 13 The Grace of God Grace is a perfection of the divine character which is exercised only towards the elect. Neither in the Old Testament nor in the New is the grace of God ever mentioned in connection with mankind generally, still less with the lower orders of his creatures. In this it is distinguished from mercy, for the mercy of God is over all his works. Psalm 145, verse 9. Grace is the sole source from which flows the goodwill, love, and salvation of God unto his chosen people. This attribute of the divine character was defined by Abraham Booth in his helpful book, The Reign of Christ, thus, quote, It is the eternal and absolute free favor of God manifested in the vouchsafement of spiritual and eternal blessings to the guilty and the unworthy, end quote. Divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the bestowment of blessings upon those who have no merit in them and for which no compensation is demanded from them. Nay, more, it is the favor of God shown to those who not only have no positive deserts of their own, but who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. It is completely unmerited and unsought, and is altogether unattracted by anything in or from or by the objects upon which it is bestowed. Grace can neither be bought, earned, nor won by the creature. If it could be, it would cease to be grace. When a thing is said to be of grace, we mean that the recipient has no claim upon it, that it was in no wise due him. It comes to him as pure charity, and at first unasked and undesired. The fullest exposition of the amazing grace of God is to be found in the epistles of the Apostle Paul. In his writings, grace stands in direct opposition to works and worthiness, all works and worthiness of whatever kind or degree. This is abundantly clear from Romans 11, verse 6, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. 
otherwise grace is no more grace. If it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Grace and works will no more unite than an acid and an alkali. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. The absolute favor of God can no more consist with human merit than oil oil and water will fuse into one. See also Romans 4, 4 and 5. There are three principal characteristics of divine grace. First, it is eternal. Grace was planned before it was exercised, purposed before it was imparted. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Second Timothy one nine. Secondly, it is free, for none did ever purchase it, being justified freely by His grace. Romans three twenty four. Thirdly, it is sovereign because God exercises it toward and bestows it upon whom he pleases. Even so might grace reign, Romans 5.21. If grace reigns, then it is on the throne, and the occupant of the throne is sovereign. Hence, the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. Just because grace is unmerited favor, it must be exercised in a sovereign manner. Therefore does the Lord declare, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, Exodus 33:19. Were God to show grace to all of Adam's descendants, men would at once conclude that he was righteously compelled to take them to heaven as a meet compensation for allowing the human race to fall into sin. But the great God is under no obligation to any of his creatures, least of all to those who are rebels against him. Eternal life is a gift, therefore it can neither be earned by good works nor claimed as a right. Seeing that salvation is a gift, who has any right to tell God on whom he ought to bestow it? It is not that the giver ever refuses this gift to any who seek it wholeheartedly and according to the rules which he has prescribed. No, he refuses none who come to him empty-handed in the way of his appointing. But if out of a world of impenitent and unbelieving rebels, God is determined to exercise his sovereign right by choosing a limited number to be saved, who is wronged? Is God obliged to force his gift on those who value it not? Is God compelled to save those who are determined to go their own way? But nothing more riles the natural man and brings to the surface his innate and inveterate enmity against God than to press upon him the eternality, the freeness, and the absolute sovereignty of divine grace, that God should have formed his purpose from everlasting without in any wise consulting the creature is too abasing for the unbroken heart. That grace cannot be earned or won by any effort of man is too self-emptying for self-righteousness, and that grace singles out whom it pleases to be favored objects a Excuse me, and the, that grace singles out whom it pleases to be its favorite objects arouses hot protest from haughty rebels. The clay rises up against the potter and asks, Why hast thou made me thus? A lawless insurrectionist dares to call into question the justice of divine sovereignty. 
The distinguishing grace of God is seen in saving those people whom he has sovereignly singled out to be his high favorites. By distinguishing, we mean that grace discriminates, making differences, choosing some and passes by others. It was distinguishing grace which selected Abraham from the midst of his idolatrous neighbors and made him the friend of God. It was distinguishing grace which saved publicans and sinners, but said of the religious Pharisees, let them alone. Matthew 15:14. Nowhere does the glory of God's free and sovereign grace shine more conspicuously than in the unworthiness and unlikeliness of its objects. Beautifully was this illustrated by James Hervey in 1751. Quote, Where sin has abounded, says the proclamation from the court of heaven, grace doth much more abound. Manasseh was a monster of barbarity, for he caused his own children to pass through the fire and fill Jerusalem with innocent blood. Manasseh was an adept was an in, adept in iniquity, for he was not only multiplied and to an extravagant degree his own sacrilegious impieties, but he poisoned the principles and perverted the manners of his subjects, making them do worse than the most detestable of the heathen idolaters. See Second Chronicles 33. Yet through this superabundant grace, he is humbled, he is reformed, and becomes a child of forgiving love, an heir of immortal glory. Still quoting, Behold, that bitter and bloody persecutor Saul, when breathing out threatenings and bent upon slaughter, he worried the lambs and put to death the disciples of Jesus. The havoc he had committed, the inoffensive families he had already ruined, were not sufficient to assuage his vengeful spirit. They were only a taste which, instead of glutting the bloodhound, made him more closely pursue the track and more eagerly pant for destruction. He is still a thirst for violence and murder. So eager and insatiable is his thirst that he even breathes out threatening and slaughter. Acts 9.1 His words are spears and arrows, and his tongue a sharp sword. Tis as natural for him to menace the Christians as to breathe the air. Nay, they bled every hour in the purpose purposes of his rancorous heart. It is only owing to want of power that every syllable he utters, every breath he draws, does not deal out deaths and cause some of the innocent disciples to fall, who, upon the principles of human judgment, would not have pronounced him a vessel of wrath destined to unavoidable damnation, nay, would not have been ready to conclude that if there were heavier chains and a deeper dungeon in the world of woe, they must surely be reserved for such an implacable enemy of true godliness. Yet admire and adore the inexhaustible treasures of grace. This Saul is admitted into the goodly fellowship of the prophets, is numbered with the noble army of martyrs, and makes a distinguishing figure among the glorious company of the apostles. The Corinthians were flitigious even to a, a proverb. Some of them wallowed in such abominable vices and habituated themselves to such outrageous acts of injustice as were a reproach to human nature. 
Yet even these sons of violence and slaves of sensuality were washed, sanctified, and justified. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11 to Washed in the precious blood of a dying Redeemer, sanctified by the powerful operations of the Blessed Spirit, justified through the infinitely tender mercies of a gracious God. Those who were once the burden of the earth are now the joy of heaven, the delight of angels. End quote. Now the grace of God is manifested in and by and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John 1.17 This does not mean that God never exercised grace towards any before his Son became incarnate. Genesis 6.8, Exodus 13.19, etc. clearly shows otherwise. But grace and truth were fully revealed and perfected perfectly exemplified when the Redeemer came to this earth and died for his people upon the cross. It is through Christ, the mediator alone, that the grace of God flows to his elect. Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ. Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 15, 17, and 21. The grace of God is proclaimed in the gospel, Acts 20, 24, which is to the self-righteous Jew a stumbling block and to the conceited and philosophizing Greek foolishness. And why so? Because there is nothing whatever in it that is adopted to the gratifying of the pride of man, it announces that unless we are saved by grace, we cannot be saved at all. It declares that apart from Christ, the unspeakable gift of God's grace, the state of every man is desperate, irremediable, and hopeless. The gospel addresses men as guilty, condemned, perishing criminals. It declares that the chastest moralist is in the same terrible plight as is the most voluptuous profligate. And the zealous professor with all his religious performances is no better off than the most profane infidel. The gospel contemplates every descendant of Adam as a fallen, polluted, hell-deserving, and helpless sinner. The grace which the gospel publishes is his only hope. All stand before God convicted as transgressors of his holy law, as guilty and condemned criminals who are not merely awaiting sentence, but the execution of sentence already passed upon them, John 3.18 and Romans 3.19. To complain against the partiality of grace is suicidal. If the sinner insists upon bare justice, then the lake of fire must be his eternal portion. His only hope lies in bowing to the sentence which divine justice has passed upon him, owning the absolute righteousness of it, casting himself on the mercy of God and stretching forth empty hands to avail himself of the grace of God now made known to him in the gospel. The third person in the Godhead is the communicator of grace. Therefore, he is denominated the spirit of grace. Zechariah 12.10 God the Father is the fountain of all grace, for he purposed in himself the everlasting covenant of redemption. God the Son is the only channel of grace. The gospel is the publisher of grace. The spirit is the bestower. He is the one who applies the gospel in saving power to the soul, quickening the elect while spiritually dead, conquering their rebellious wills, melting their hard hearts, opening their blind eyes, cleansing them from the leprosy of sin. 
Thus we may say with the late G.S. Bishop, quote, Grace is a provision for men who are so fallen that they cannot lift the acts of justice so corrupt that they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God that they cannot turn to Him, so blind that they cannot see Him, so deaf that they cannot hear Him, and so dead that He Himself must open their graves and lift them into resurrection. End quote. This ends tape number four of The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. Please go to the next tape in the series. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail or catalog containing classic and contemporary, contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can be reached at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. Please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.